Welcome to It Awaits You, a podcast composed of true Southern Gothic tales for the modern age. This week on It Awaits You, you'll hear the damning connections discovered between Antoine Pittman and each victim of the Seven Bridges killer, through the prism of Antoine's life, past and present. What emerged in the press prior to his trial for the murder of Tara Nicholson in September 2011 would only continue to spark more interest in the supposedly caged killer. Antoine, plucked from the obscurity of his life in North Carolina, now had America's attention, its two very different realities colliding throughout his story, the story of the victims, the story of Rocky Mount, all in one. Antoine Maurice Pittman, the man arrested September 1, 2009, for only the murder of Tara Nicholson, came into this world when his single teen mother, Gloria Pittman, gave birth to him on July 15, 1978. He was accompanied by three brothers and one sister. They lived in Battleboro, the small town you find when you follow Seven Bridges Road outside the city of Rocky Mount. His father, though known to Antoine and living nearby, was absent from his life. That would remain a consistent theme through the murder trial and beyond. For much of Antoine's upbringing, Gloria Pittman relied on family members to fill the gaps a struggling mother and missing father couldn't handle. When he first emerged in the spotlight, Antoine was deceptively labeled a normal child by family members and neighbors. His formative years spiraled into a predictably tragic cycle, echoed by the words of one of his court-appointed attorneys. Nothing good was ever going to come of his life. But unfortunately, that lack of good in Antoine's life would also appear to cross paths with every woman strangled, stabbed, and dragged into the woods by the Seven Bridges killer, leading to a potentially damning body of circumstantial evidence well beyond the murder of Tara Nicholson when it comes to the question of his true identity being the Seven Bridges killer. So as his life is discussed, you'll discover the undeniably odd connections to each victim, but for the sake of balance, when the time comes, you'll also hear the devil's advocate perspective regarding the questions some raise about Antoine's guilt being a foregone conclusion. Antoine struggled from an early age with a learning disability. He was prescribed Ritalin and at one point ended up being taken from Gloria Pittman by social services. The story at school was no better than at home for young Antoine. Like many who decide to drop out of high school, he made the decision early, while still in the ninth grade. From there, he worked various jobs, magazine salesman in a tobacco warehouse, and ultimately, at the chicken processing plant where he would years later be interviewed by SBI agents in July 2009 regarding Tara Nicholson's murder. He also developed a love for hip-hop from a young age. In fact, he was coming back from a local studio after a recording session on the night he encountered Tara Nicholson during what would be her last hours alive, at least according to the prosecution. 
But before those chapters of his ill-fated life would unfold, something disturbing occurred soon after he dropped out of high school. And while it's difficult to examine, it clearly speaks volumes about a darker side of Antoine Pittman that seems to have only grown deeper into adulthood. In 1994, at age 16, shortly after he dropped out, Antoine was arrested and charged with the attempted rape of a two-year-old girl. The resulting plea deal reduced the charge to indecent liberties and a three-year sentence for Antoine, making him one of the early names on Edgecombe County's sex offender registry. A crucial detail overlooked until the FBI started assisting the task force in July 2009 no doubt prompting the SBI interview at the Purdue chicken plant that would soon follow. But one wonders, given the sometimes cyclical nature of abuse creating abusers, what happened to Antoine as a child to make him do that to a two-year-old? During his years of rotating family members, had someone harmed him? While a worthy inquiry, the answer is unknown. But going back to 1994, as a result of the attempted rape of the two-year-old girl, Antoine was placed in a boot camp-style program for youth offenders called IMPACT. Because he repeatedly started fights, he was removed from the program and placed under house arrest with his mother. After continuously violating the rules of his new probation agreement, Antoine was sent to serve one year and three months in the Western Youth Institute in Morganton, North Carolina, where, you guessed it, he continued to cause trouble. One infraction after another led to his placement in solitary confinement on multiple occasions for various time frames. No doubt this practice continued the degradation of an already maladjusted mind. And after the American criminal justice system created an even more dangerous and unstable individual, Antoine was released from the Institute in 1997, back into the world he knew best in Rocky Mount and Battleboro. Upon his release, the sense of impending doom in his life continued to grow. Underage alcohol possession, larceny, resisting an officer and assault. He returned to jail for 45 days in 2003 for failing to update his sex offender registry status while 2004 brought a DWI conviction for Antoine, now close to his mid-twenties. It was around this time the victims of the Seven Bridges killer started appearing. Then, in 2007, Antoine was actually charged with soliciting a sex worker in the downtown area of Rocky Mount, frequented by each of the victims of the Seven Bridges killer. The charge was dropped when the arresting officer had to serve in Iraq. If not for this glitch in the system, how many lives could have been saved? Antoine flat out lied to the SBI agents during the July 2009 interview regarding his history with sex workers, in addition to lying about knowing Tara Nicholson, who told her mom she didn't get in the car with people she didn't know. In fact, Antoine did know Tara through Tara's sister's boyfriend, a buddy of Antoine's. But that's just where the connections begin, and they become far more specific from here, and more difficult to discount as chilling parallels between the life of Antoine Pittman and each victim of the Seven Bridges killer, perhaps one man in the same. Even many family members of victims were initially skeptical of Pittman's guilt, 
especially given the fact there was no physical evidence leaking him to the other women, in addition to his lack of transportation, or at least lack of legal transportation. However, as creepy details began to emerge from the investigation, Moore became convinced of the monster inside the mild-mannered neighbor, whose only known idiosyncrasy was his constant movement to and from his home in the middle of the night. Ernestine Battle's mother, Cornetta, pointed out the Battle family had actually known the Pittmans all those years. She saw Antoine as a nice, quiet boy. However, Jackie Thorpe's mother eventually said of Antoine, I got a red flag that's really waving toward me now, and there is not even a breeze in the air. I had my doubts about Pittman all along, but not so much now. So, why was she so convinced? Antoine's entire life was framed around the landscape of the murders. The residence of Antoine's grandparents was located in Whitakers, North Carolina, directly adjacent to Seven Bridges Road. When he farmed tobacco, many of the fields he worked in would serve as future dump sites for the Seven Bridges killer. From 2003 to 2009, he lived in a number of homes in and around Rocky Mount, including one brick house on Daniels Avenue in Battleboro, just a couple miles from Seven Bridges Road. But there are two homes in particular that paint an even more suspicious portrait of Mr. Pittman. A woman named Darlene Moore, who would later identify Antoine during trial testimony, was attacked on her birthday, February 7, 2004, by a John while she worked in downtown Rocky Mount. She fought back but blacked out as he overpowered and choked her. Eventually, she regained consciousness as they reached Seven Bridges Road, where the attack continued once he pulled her out of the car. Darlene struggled enough to knock both of them to the ground. Antoine stood up slowly, in an almost disoriented fog. His demeanor, his stance, his eyes, had completely shifted from murderous rage to docile and apologetic. He asked her to forgive him, helped her with her coat, and adjusted her seat when she got back into the car. He drove her home in silence, other than the occasional plea for forgiveness. The entire way, he forcefully cupped her balled-up hand with his, after tucking the $10 bill he owed her into her fist. Weeks later, she would see her attacker in traffic and follow him to Columbia Avenue in Rocky Mount, straight to the home where Antoine lived at the time. This Columbia Avenue residence is only a block from where Elizabeth Smallwood was found by a soccer field in 2009 and only a mile from where Travis Harrison was found in Cokies Creek three years before. In 2006, Antoine lived in a mobile home in Scotland Neck, North Carolina, located in Halifax County, over 40 miles from the area where the other bodies were found. But it's also where the skeleton of Christine Boone was found in March of 2010 along the woods line behind the home, six months after Antoine's arrest. Six days after Christine was found, the skeleton of Roberta Williams was located by people riding four-wheelers along Seven Bridges Road. The Rocky Mount Police claimed to have no record of her missing persons report. One month after those gruesome discoveries, under increasing pressure to assist with the investigation, Bev Perdue, governor of North Carolina at the time, 
ordered a National Guard search of the 506-square-mile area encompassing Seven Bridges Road and the surrounding land. It yielded no results, becoming unfortunately an only symbolic gesture. A search for women that were lost a long time ago, in a reality many didn't care to grasp. As he sat awaiting trial, Antoine's suspected crimes continued to unleash a chain reaction of tragedy and frustration. But before those dramatic developments would happen, there were two subtle events in Antoine's life that, to some at least, are quite curious. Not long after Tara Nicholson's body was found in early March 2009, Antoine was hanging out with Tara's sister's boyfriend and one of his friends. When the sister's boyfriend mentioned the murder, Antoine replied, Yeah, man, that was fucked up. Weeks later, in April 2009, Antoine was found asleep in his car on Seven Bridges Road by a state trooper. His pant zipper was down and his boots were completely covered in dirt. One DWI charge and one revoked license later, Antoine was released. Two months later, in June, Jarnice Hargrove was found in the woods off Seven Bridges Road, 200 yards from the very spot Antoine sat sleeping in his car that night in April. And the day Jarnice disappeared, well, that's the day Pittman was arrested for the DWI. As much of a stir as all this might cause in your mind, the final nail in the coffin of perception would come during Antoine's trial in September 2011. His days in court would include his documented dishonesty with investigators, his computer history, previous attacks on testifying sex workers, and the contradictory holes in his story surrounding March 1st, 2009, the night he met with Tara Nicholson shortly before her death. All this and more in one week. It awaits you. In the meantime, you can find us on social media and get even more content through our Patreon, where your support is very appreciated. If you like this episode and want others to hear about it, Take a moment to follow, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, it awaits you. <laughs>